I have the shadowy recollection of being in an airplane bound for New York and of finding a friendly taxicab driver at the landing field instead of my wife. The driver escorted me about for several days. I know little of where I went or what I said and did. Then came the hospital with unbearable mental and physical suffering. As soon as I regained my ability to think, I went carefully over that evening in Washington. Not only had I been off guard, I had made no fight whatever against the first drink. This time I had not thought of the consequences at all. I had commenced to drink as carelessly as though the cocktails were ginger ale. You know, old Fred or old Jim vaguely sensed he wasn't being any too smart. Fred didn't even sense that. Fred just thought a couple of cocktails with dinner would be great. And based on that idea, he takes a drink, triggers the allergy, ends up drunk all over again. Is his real problem the fact that he has a physical allergy to alcohol or that he has a form of insanity that tells him it's okay to drink alcohol? The real problem centers in the mind telling us we can drink rather than in the body that ensures that we can't drink. Well, hello, friends of Bill W. and other friends. You have landed on Sober Speak. My name is John M. I am an alcoholic, and we are glad you are all here, especially newcomers. Newcomers, that is, both to recovery as a whole and newcomers to this podcast. Sober Speak is a podcast about recovery centered around the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. My job here on Sober Speak is simple. My job is to provide a platform to the amazing stories of recovery all around us. Consider Sober Speak, if you will, your meeting between meetings. Please remember, we do not speak for AA or any 12 step community. We represent only ourselves. We are here to share our experience, strength, and hope with those who wish to come along for the ride, take what you want, and leave the rest at the curb for the trash man to pick up. Greetings from Studio AA deep in the heart of Texas. That was the voice of one of the tandem of Joe and Charlie that you heard at the beginning of this here episode, episode number 305, and you are going to hear so much more from them in un momento. By the way, I've been saying recently on the podcast that this podcast is Heco in Tejas, because I saw my friend Curry uh, reading, excuse me, wearing, not reading, wearing a shirt one day in the meeting that said what I thought was Heco in Tejas. But my friend has counseled me and advised that the word Heco is not pronounced Heco. It is Echo in Tejas. The H is silent. So for all of my fluent Spanish-speaking friends out there, uh, my apologies. This here episode, excuse me, this here podcast is Echo in Tejas. 
Oh, a little bit. Um, once again, I'm always concerned about the people who are tuning in for the very first time <laughs> to this podcast. And, and once again, it gets really good after I stop speaking. Okay, so don't let first impressions scare you away. But before we get to Joe and Charlie on episode number five, yeah, no, no, excuse me, part five, not episode five of their talk. First things first, this here episode is brought to you by Michelle and Terry and Todd and Kurt. What you may ask, did that wonderful group of individuals do when they went to our little website? www.soberspeak.com. They clicked on that little yellow donate tab and they made a, a contribution. So thank you so much, Michelle and Terry and Todd and Kurt. This here episode is coming right out to Ewan's. All right, so let's go ahead and get right into Joe and Charlie part five. Just so you know, all right. Uh, the reason I put these guys up here is because they are mainstays within the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. They are credited with, oh, getting, I think it was the late 80s, early 90s. Uh, I, okay, here's what I know. They met in 1973, and they started spreading their interpretation of the big book all over the world. And this talk is called, The Big Book Comes Alive. I'm always thinking about like uh, this big book. You know those films where something comes alive and it comes and devours your town or devours your family or something like that? I always get this kind of picture in my head when I say the big book comes alive of it just, I don't know, growing teeth or something like that and coming into meetings and say, it's alive, here it comes. But that's not really what this is. What big book comes alive really means is, you know, that that when you read the big book and they interpret the big book for you, that it comes alive and you can start living the big book in your life. But once again, getting back to why I do this, is it's because these guys are mainstays. And I am not the only place. Just so you know, if, if you're into Joe and Charlie, you can find, you just got to type in Joe and Charlie Big Book on the, uh, on, on the Google and you will see, uh, you can listen to them all over the place. So this is just one avenue. But if you want to hear the four parts before this, just go back in my, uh, in my uh, uh, episodes here, and you can see the first four episodes of Joe and Charlie. I'll be kind of intermittently mixing these guys in as the year rolls on. I just didn't want to do them, you know, like uh, 10 episodes, excuse me, 10 parts in a row. And there are 10 parts total uh, to Joe and Charlie, but uh, nonetheless, Joe and Charlie, for those of you who don't know, have gone on to the big meeting in the sky. Joe, I believe, passed in 2007. And Charlie, I think he passed in 2011. And hopefully one day we'll We'll be able to, or I'll be able to be up there and read the big book with these two gents because they definitely had a big influence on my life. Uh, 
Keep in mind, this is a recording, so there are hard stops. Uh, sometimes there are a little bit of a blank spots, but the overall audio is pretty good, so I decided to go ahead and publish it. If you are um, seated at a table or you're somewhere where you can actually take notes, you know, you're not driving. You, let's put it this way. Let's make sure you're not operating heavy machinery while you're taking notes on these guys, okay? Um, but uh, so, uh, what else was I going to say? Uh, but you can take notes, you know, do sticky. I still have notes in my original big book from listening to these guys. Um, they're absolutely fantastic. They have some fantastic points. So, Let's get on with the big book comes alive. And uh, today, ladies and gentlemen, we will not have any listener feedback at the end of this episode. And I'm busy, right? That, that's why. <laughs> uh, but we'll, I'll catch up on listener feedback uh, next week, I am sure. Hopefully, who knows? I may not even be here next week. But um, what else do I have? What I have to say? That's it. Um, if you are not part of our super secret Facebook, go to Facebook and search up the words Sober Speak Secret Group. Ask for admission into the group and we will get you on in there. So, but nonetheless, enjoy Joe and Charlie here and we will see you next week, hopefully. Okay. We uh, <laughs> we finished before lunch. We finished with uh, with old Jim's story, and we finished up at the top of page thirty-seven. And there it told us that uh, whatever the precise definition of the word may be, we call this plain insanity. How can such a lack of proportion of the ability to think straight be called anything else? Now, you may think this is an extreme case. To us, it is not far-fetched, for this kind of thinking has been characteristic of every single one of us. We have sometimes reflected more than Jim did upon the consequences. There was always a curious mental phenomenon that parallel with our sound reasoning, there inevitably ran some insanely trivial excuse for taking the first drink. Our sound reasoning failed to hold us in check. The insane idea won out. Next day, we would ask ourselves in all earnestness and sincerity how it could have happened. In some circumstances, we've gone out deliberately to get drunk, feeling ourselves justified by nervousness, anger, worry, depression, <coughs> jealousy, or the like. But even in this type of beginning, we're obliged to admit that our justification for a spree was insanely insufficient in the light of what always happened. We now see that when we began to drink deliberately instead of casually, there was little serious or effective thought during the period of premeditation of what the ter terrific consequences might be. You know, and that was always one of my favorite things. I always said, well, hell, I can't feel any worse. I might as well get drunk. can't feel any worse than I'm feeling the way I am now. And I'd go ahead and get drunk, and invariably I felt a hell of a lot worse before I got through with it, always. The inability to be able to see the truth about alcohol. 
Our behavior is as absurd and incomprehensible with respect to the first drink as that of an individual individual with a passion, say, for jaywalking. He gets out of thrill out of skipping in front of fast-moving vehicles. I don't understand this guy at all. <laughs> but I can see him standing out here on the interstate waiting for a big bus or a trust truck to come down through there, jumps out in front of it, spins around two or three times, sees how close it can come to hitting him without actually hitting him. For some reason, he gets a thrill out of it. Don't understand it, but I can see it. He enjoys himself for a few years in spite of friendly warnings. People are saying, hey, Jim, you better quit doing that. You're going to get hurt if you keep that up. He doesn't pay any attention to them. Up to this point, you would label him a foolish chap having queer ideas of fun. Luck then deserts him, and he's slightly injured several times in succession. Getting a little older now. He can't move as fast. They begin to hit him once in a while. Nothing serious. He just kind of bounces off of them. Now, you would expect him, if he were normal, to cut it out. But presently, he's hit again, and this time has a fractured skull. He got hurt bad this time. Within a week after leaving the hospital, a fast-moving trolley car breaks his arm. He gets hurt bad again. Now he sings their national anthem. He says, I'll never jaywalk again as long as I live. He tells you he's decided to stop jaywalking for good. But in a few weeks, he breaks both legs. On through the years, this conduct continues accompanied by his continual promises to be careful to keep off the streets altogether. Finally, he can no longer work. He just so beat up now he can't hold a job. His wife gets a divorce. She's tired of supporting him and the hospital bills and everything else. And he's held up to ridicule. He tries every known means to get the jaywalking idea out of his head. Not his body, his head. He shuts himself up in a treatment center hoping to mend his ways. But the day he comes out, he races in front of a fire engine which breaks his back. Such a man would be crazy, wouldn't he? Now you may think our illustration is too ridiculous, but is it? We who have been through the ringer have to admit, if we substituted alcoholism for jaywalking, the illustration would fit us exactly. However intelligent we may have been in other respects where alcohol has been involved, we've been strangely insane. It's strong language, but isn't it true? Now, some of you are thinking, yeah, what you tell us is true, but it doesn't fully apply. We admit we have some of these symptoms, but we've not gone to the extremes you fellows did, nor are we likely to. For we understand ourselves so well after what you've told us that such things cannot happen again. We've not lost everything in life through drinking. We certainly do not intend to. Thanks for the information. Kiss my oh. (laughs) Thanks for the information. Now, you know, Jim, Jim is what we call a low-bottom drunk. Jim had lost everything. Jim had to be a salesman for he, for a concern he once owned. And it seems to be a little bit easier for the low-bottom drunk to really be able to see the problem than it is for the high-bottom drunk. Now, due to education, once again, 
We're getting many, many people in AA today who haven't lost everything. You know, every once in a while you see somebody come in here still got a job. Occasionally somebody comes in there and they're still married. I saw a guy come in the other day and he still owned an automobile. He really did. And we start talking to those guys about the insanity of alcoholism. And they said, man, man, don't tell me I'm crazy. Don't tell me I'm insane. I haven't lost my job. I haven't lost my marriage. I've still got my car. It's a little bit harder for a high-bottom drunk to see the truth than it is for the low-bottom drunk. But the high-bottom drunk, when they get drunk, they get drunk just exactly like the low-bottom drunk does. They have to believe a lie in order to get drunk. Now, we're getting ready to look at a guy named Fred. And Fred is a high-bottom drunk. He's never lost anything through drinking. But he gets drunk just exactly like Jim did. He believed a lie just before he took the first drink. Let's look at old Fred for just a minute or two. We have a lot of people named Fred coming into AA today, and they're high-bottom people. And so many people pull out their war stories and begin to talk about going to 129 treatment centers and 59 divorces and jail for 143 years and all that stuff. And Fred looks at that and says, well, I'm not an alcoholic. I, I haven't done those things. Well, being in jail doesn't make an alcoholic. Having car wrecks don't make an alcoholic. What makes an alcoholic is the allergy of the body and the obsession of the mind. If we talked about those things as we do in our group and beginners meeting, Fred could identify with those, and maybe he wouldn't have to go back out there and have a drink. That's what the book suggests that we do. But Fred is a partner in a well-known accounting firm. His income is good. He has a fine home, is happily married, and father promising children of college age. He has so attractive a personality that he makes friends with everyone. If ever there was a successful businessman, it's Fred. To all appearance, he's a stable, well-balanced individual, yet he's alcoholic. We first saw Fred about a year ago in a hospital where he'd gone to recover from a bad case of the jitters. It was the first, his first experience of this kind, and he was much ashamed of it. Far from admitting he was an alcoholic, <clears throat> he told himself he'd came to the hospital to rest his nerves. We see lots of nerve resters in AA today, just, just like old Fred, lots of them. The doctor intimated strongly he might be worse than he realized. For a few days, he was depressed about his condition. Now, he made up his mind to quit drinking altogether. It never occurred to him that perhaps he could not do so. In spite of his character and standing, Fred would not believe himself an alcoholic. He would not take step one. Much less accept a spiritual remedy for his problem. If you can't take one, you can't take two. And we told him what we knew of alcoholism. They told him about one and two. And he was interested and conceded he had some of the symptoms. But he was a long way from admitting that he could do nothing about himself. He was positive that his humiliating experience, plus the knowledge he had acquired, would keep him sober the rest of his life. Self-knowledge would fix it. <clears throat> now, we heard no more of Fred for a while. One day we were told that he was back in the hospital. This time he was quite shaky. He soon indicated that he was anxious to see us. The, to- the story he told us is most instructive. For here was a chap absolutely convinced he had to stop drinking, who had no excuse for drinking, who exhibited splendid judgment and determination all his other concerns, yet was flat on his back nevertheless. Well, let him tell you about it. He said, I was much impressed with what you felt said about alcoholism. 
and I frankly did not believe it would be possible for me to drink again. And I rather appreciate your ideas about that subtle insanity which precedes the first drink. But I was confident it could not happen to me after what I'd learned. I reasoned I was not so far advanced as you fellows, most of you fellows, and that I was usually successful in licking my other personal problems, and I would therefore be successful where your men fail. I felt I had every right to be self-confident. That would be only a matter of exercising my willpower and keeping on guard. In this frame of mind, I went about my business, and for time all was well. I had no trouble refusing drinks and began to wonder if I had not been making too hard a work of a simple matter. I think Fred began to get drunk right here, and mine began to tell him it's not as bad as they said it was. One day I went to Washington to present some accounting evidence to a government bureau. I'd been out of town during this particular dry spell, so there's nothing new about that. Physically, I felt fine. Neither did I have any pressing problems or worries. My business came off well, and I was pleased and knew my partners would be too. It was the end of a perfect day, not a cloud on the horizon. Fred was doing good, wasn't he? Staying sober, family was doing well, business is good. He's on top of the world. Everything's going great for Fred this day. He said, I went to my hotel and leisurely dressed for dinner. As I crossed the threshold of the dining room, the thought came to mind, it would be nice to have a couple of cocktails and go back to the hospital. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Now that's the truth, isn't it? But he couldn't drink on the truth. His mind just simply had to say it would be nice to have a couple of cocktails with dinner. That was all. Nothing more. Now, based on the insane idea, he makes a decision and takes some action. I ordered a cocktail in my meal. Then I ordered another cocktail. Got it inside ourselves now. The physical allergy takes over. After dinner, I decide to take a walk. When I returned to the hotel, it struck me a highball would be fine before going to bed, so I stepped into the bar and had one. I remember having several more that night and plenty next morning. I have a shadowy recollection of being in an airplane bound for New York and of finding a friendly taxicab driver at the landing field instead of my wife. The driver escorted me about for several days. I know little of where I went or what I said and did. Then came the hospital with unbearable mental and physical suffering. As soon as I regained my ability to think, I went carefully over that evening in Washington. Not only had I been off guard, I had made no fight whatever against the first drink. This time I had not thought of the consequences at all. I would commenced to drink as carelessly as though the cocktails were ginger ale. You know, Fred, old Jim, vaguely sensed he wasn't being any too smart. Fred didn't even sense that. Fred just thought a couple of cocktails with dinner would be great. And based on that idea, he takes a drink, triggers the allergy, ends up drunk all over again. Now, is his real problem the fact that he has a physical allergy to alcohol? Or that he has a form of insanity that tells him it's okay to drink alcohol? The real problem centers in the mind telling us we can drink rather than in the body that ensures that we can't drink. Let's go to page 43, last paragraph. And he said once more. Now, he's only told us about six or seven times, okay? That's the way you talk to drunks. You tell them about six or seven times, then you tell them once more. 
He said, he told us through Bill's story that you can't stay sober on self-knowledge. On Roland's story that you can't stay sober on self-knowledge. Jim's story, you can't stay sober on self-knowledge. Jay Walker's story, you can't keep him jaywalking on self-knowledge. <laughs> Fred's story, self-knowledge. So once more, he tells us, the alcoholic at certain times has no effective mental defense against the first drink, except in a few rare cases. Neither he nor any other human being can provide such a defense. His defense must come from a higher power. Can't heal a sick mind with a sick mind. Can't think your way out of it. Self-knowledge won't get it. Just won't do it. At the end of this chapter now, he shut the door on me. He's let me see that if I don't find that power greater than human power because of the insanity of alcoholism, I'm going to go back to drinking again just as sure as anything. Now, whether I like the idea of the power greater than human power is beside the point. He's let me see here what's going to happen to me if I don't find that power. Now, if you're the kind of alcoholic that I am, and if you were raised in the church setting that I was raised in, then you would now find yourself in one hell of a dilemma. Because I fully realized at the end of this chapter that if I don't find this power, God as I understand Him, or whatever you want to call Him, and get that in my life, and I'm going to go back to drink it again. But I also fully understand, or understood at that time, I would be unable to find that power. Because you see, I was raised in a good old Southern Baptist church. Now please don't get me wrong, I've got nothing against the Southern Baptist church. It's a good church then, and it's a good church today. But when I was a kid going to that Southern Baptist church, I'm quite sure that once in a while they talked about a kind and a loving God. But if they did, that message never got to the pew that I sat in. Because all I remember hearing about God as a kid growing up in church was hellfire and brimstone. Going to hell for lying and cheating and stealing and drinking whiskey and committing adultery. By the time I got to AA, I'd been doing that for 26 years. And I knew God had already told St. Peter, when that little four-eyed sucker gets up here, send them downstairs. We'll not need his kind. I remember so clearly when I separated from God and I separated from the church. As a kid growing up in that church, they gave me the rules. They told me what I could do and what I couldn't do. They said, if you do this, this, and this, you'll be okay. If you do that, that, and that, you're going to hell just sure as anything. And I didn't have a bit of problem with that until I got to be about 13 years old. And one day the minister looked me straight in the eye, and he said, to think about doing it is just as bad as doing it. And I said, oh, shit. (laughs) I've had it now. Because I'd been thinking about doing it for about two years. (laughs) And I said to myself, well, if you're going to go to hell for thinking about doing it, then you just might as well go ahead and do it. (laughs) And I did it. And I didn't go to hell immediately. And I said to myself, that sucker has been lying to me all along. And I made up my mind that day that that minister and my parents and my teachers 
had joined together in a conspiracy to keep me from having any fun. And I said to hell with them. From this day on, I'm not going to pay any attention to what he says, what they say. From now on, I'm going to do it my way, the way I want to, and if they don't like it, to hell with them. And I walked away from church. And I walked away from God. And I was about 12, maybe 13 years old. When I come to AA, I was 38 years old the first day I walked in the door of AA. And I had the spiritual knowledge of a 12 or 13 year old kid that was absolutely scared to death about God. And it would seem to be able, for me to be able to find God in my life. For God to do anything good for me would be an impossible thing, period. Thank God Bill Wilson's a real alcoholic. Thank God he knew how I was going to feel when I got here. And thank God he knew that based on old ideas about God, it would be impossible for me to make a decision about this God thing. And I think he said to himself, "Is maybe I better give that guy a little more information. Maybe I better give him some new ideas about God so that he can discard some old ideas about God, and then maybe he can make a decision about this God thing. And he sat around and he wrote the next chapter, chapter 4, We Agnostics. I think it's one of the greatest pieces of spiritual information I've ever read in my life. Nowhere does this chapter try to prove to me there is any kind of God. Nowhere does it try to force this God thing on me. What it does do is give me some new ideas about God, things that I'd never heard before. And based on the new ideas, I was able to discard some old ideas. And then I was able to make a decision. And since that time, God has proven to me that there is a kind and a loving God. Thank God for this chapter we agnostics. Let's look at it for a few minutes. Yeah, I love the chapter we agnostics. It's opened up my mind to a point. See, what I've learned up to this point is I can't stay sober on my willpower. I tried that. The reason I can't stay sober on my willpower is the possession of the mind is stronger than my will. There's only one thing stronger than the obsession of the mind. And that's he who made it. I'm getting right down to it now. Only God can remove the obsession of the mind. Because you can't heal a sick mind with a sick mind. Only God can do that. And people like me with the spiritual knowledge of a seven-year-old boy, I had a real problem. Because my understanding was that of a seven-year-old boy when I got here. Bill knew that we were going to feel that way. Because remember he said when they talked to me, God, my mind snapped shut against such theories. He knew we too were going to have those kind of problems. Our book says later on that when the spiritual malady is overcome, we straighten out physically and mentally. The word malady means illness, by the way. When the spiritual illness is overcome. See, I had a spiritual illness, a misunderstanding. Seven-year-old boy understanding. I needed another understanding. And this chapter we agnostic gives us another understanding. It's not in there to prove to us that there's a God or any particular type of religion. What it is in here for... It's for me to read and, and to study and ask questions to myself and with this book. What does that mean to me? 
What does that mean to me? Does that have any relevance to me? Can I understand that? Talk to other people about it. Get a better understanding. Well, how it happens is that my mind opened up. And then God will prove to me that there's a God with an open mind. See, I never had any trouble with the idea about God. My trouble came from those people who were trying to tell me what their idea was and force it on me. That's where my trouble was. I resisted that, always did. The chapter we agnostic, greatest piece of spiritual information that's ever been written, I suppose. It's there to open up our mind. And so God can prove to us that there's a God. And when that happens, then nobody but nobody but nobody could improve upon that. Because we'll have a God of our own understanding that's just ours. The greatest piece of spiritual information, the chapter we agnostic. Gnostic means knowledge. Put the ag in front means without. Those of us who without knowledge, or at least the knowledge of a seven-year-old boy, I needed some different kinds of knowledge. In the preceding chapters, you've learned something of alcoholism. We hope we've made clear the distinction between the alcoholic and the non-alcoholic. If, when you honestly want to, you find you cannot quit entirely. That's because of the obsession. Or if, when drinking, you have little control of the amount you take. That's because of the allergy. You're probably alcoholic. We just love the simplicity of the big book. Two little questions to determine if you're alcoholic. I use them all the time. People come to me today. They say, Charlie, you think I might be alcoholic? And I say, I don't know. Let me ask you a couple of questions. Have you been able to quit drinking entirely, left on your own resources? They're real alcoholic. they got to say no. And I say, do you have any control over the amount you drink after you once start drinking? If they're real alcoholic, they got to say no. And I say, well, then you're probably an alcoholic. And it's just that Simple. But you see how people love to expand on things. Our fellowship wasn't satisfied with these two little questions. They came out with a pamphlet that had ten questions in it to see if you're alcoholic. Some years later, that wasn't enough, so they came out with another that had twenty questions in it. I think they got one out now that's got forty-four questions in it. To see if you're alcoholic. No, we just need these two little simple questions. Joe and I had an old friend uh, used to live in Tyler, Texas. Wino Joe. Wino Joe. I've always felt sorry for anybody in AA that didn't get to meet Wino Joe. He was a real character. And he made up his own list of questions to see if you're alcoholic. And the first question on his list was, Has the roof of your mouth ever been sunburned? (laughs) Joe Joe used to lay out in them West Texas cotton fields and drink wine and lay there with his mouth open. (laughs) Roof his mouth would get sunburned. (laughs) His second question was, have you ever been arrested for drunk driving from the back seat of somebody else's car? The question in the 44 questions, do you drink alone? Think about that. If I'm buying, yes. And if you're buying, no. (laughs) Another question old Joe had that I just loved. He said, have have you ever been arrested for public drunk while in jail? (laughs) (laughs) We only need these two. Okay. Now the book says, if that be the case, you may be suffering from an illness. 
which only a spiritual experience will conquer. You know, we are very unique people. We're the only people in the world that have a twofold illness that can only be overcome by a spiritual experience. We probably number amongst a few people in the world that have a terminal illness. And we can come out of it in better shape than we went into it if we can have this spiritual experience. Now, to one who feels he's an atheist or agnostic, such an experience seems impossible. But to continue as he is means disaster, especially if he's an alcoholic of the hopeless variety. Be doomed To be doomed to an alcoholic death. Step one. Or to live on a spiritual basis. Step two. Are not always easy alternatives to face, but it isn't so difficult. About half our original fellowship were of exactly that type. At first, some of us tried to avoid the issue, hoping against hope we were not true alcoholics. But after a while, we had to face the fact that we must find a spiritual basis of life or else. Perhaps it's going to be that way with you. But cheer up. Something like half of us thought we were atheists or agnostics, and our experience shows that you need not be disconcerted. And I think for me, right here, I had to stop. And I had to look at these words, atheist, agnostic, and what they really mean. Went to the dictionary and looked them up. And the dictionary defines as atheist as one who says there is no God. And even professes to be able to prove there's no God. Well, if the atheist really believes that, then they would have no power greater than human power to turn to. And they would have to stand on their own two feet and make their own decisions and run their own show. And a spiritual experience would seem to be an impossibility for them. I said, Charlie, are you an atheist? And I said, no, I'm not an atheist. Maybe you're an agnostic. And I looked up the word agnostic, and it's defined as one who believes there is a God, but acts as if he disbelieves. Stands on his own two feet, runs his own show, rules his own destiny, never turns to God for help. And he gets the same help from God that the atheist gets, which is nothing. I said, are you an agnostic? And I said, you bet your boots I am. Because I've always believed in God. Ever since I left that church, I believed in God. But I had no knowledge of God because I never tried to use God in my life. I ran my own show. I ruled my own destiny, just like the atheist did, even though I believed there was a God. Today, I believe the majority of the people coming to AA are agnostics. You know, I've never seen a true atheist in AA. Oh, I've seen some of them that profess to say there is no God, but they even believed in evolution. And if evolution isn't proof of some kind of power greater than human power, I don't know what is. I think most of us get here believing in God, but acting as if we disbelieve in God, and we don't turn to God for help. We don't turn to God for direction. We run and we rule our own show. And that's what got us in trouble. If a mere code of morals or a better philosophy of life were sufficient to overcome alcoholism, many of us would recover it long ago. We alcoholics are not drunken bums. Drunken bums are just about where they want to be. They're not too interested in changing the situation. We alcoholics have... A set of morals. 
We have a philosophy of life. We will be there with a drunken bum, but we don't want to be there. That's the difference. And if our morals and if our philosophies would have saved us, many of us would have recovered a long time ago. But we found that such codes and philosophies did not save us, no matter how much we tried. We could wish to be moral. We could wish to be philosophically comforted. In fact, we could will these things with all our might, but the needed power wasn't there. Our human resources, now that's what the atheists and agnostic are, that's what they're running on. Our human resources, as marshaled by the will, were not sufficient. They failed utterly. Lack of power, that was our dilemma. And I'm sure that's absolutely true. If you and I could have found the power in any other way, we would not have become members of Alcoholics Anonymous. We're here because this is the court of last resort. Everything else we tried, none of it worked. I've never seen a newcomer come in AA yet and, and say when I was 14 years old, I took a drink of alcohol and jumped up and down and shouted with joy and said I can hardly wait to be a member of AA when I'm 36. <laughs> no, we came here because we had no other choice. If we could have found the power in any other way, we wouldn't be members of AA today. We had to find a power by which we could live. And it had to be a power greater than ourselves, obviously. But where and how were we to find this power? Well, that's exactly what this book is about. Its main object is to enable you to find a power greater than yourself, which will solve your problem. It doesn't say which will help you solve it, or which will enable you to solve it. It says, which will solve your problem. And I find, interestingly enough, from page 45 on, we don't talk about alcohol anymore. We're through talking about alcohol. From page 45 on, we talk about one thing and one thing only. For those of us who are powerless, and that's all of us, how do you find the power? And if we can find the power, then the power will solve the problem. Joe? Let's go to page 46 for a moment. I had a little first sponsor. His name was George Gibbs. And George was a little black guy that I was in the Army with. Come into AA. Ends up being closer to me than my own family. George is dead now. But he taught me a lot about this idea right here. I told him, I said, George, I'm having a hard time with this God idea. He said, I know. I can tell that you are. He said, why don't you do some things that I have done? He read this to me. He said, yes, we have agnostic temper and had these softened experience. Let's make haste to reassure you. We found that as soon as we were to lay aside prejudice and express even a willingness to believe in the power greater than ourselves, we commenced to get results. Even though it was impossible for us, any of us to fully define or comprehend that power, which is God. He said, go home tonight and get you a pencil and a piece of paper out. Forget all that that you think you know, those old ideas that you have. And if you could, realize you can't, but if you could, write down what you would want God to be. See, I didn't know you could do that. You go to hell in Oklahoma for doing that. 
and still will go to hell in Oklahoma for doing that. Go to hell in a hurry, too. <laughs> but he uh, he gave me permission to do that. I didn't. You know, I must have needed a permission. So I went home that night and I wrote down some things that I would like God to be. I presented those to George, and he looked at them and he said, "That's good. You can start right there." See, I needed a starting point, I, and he gave it to me. Old ideas cast aside, new ones accepted. See, I didn't know you could do that. Much to our relief, we discovered we did not need to consider another's conception of God. Our own conception, however inadequate, was sufficient to make the approach and effect the contact with Him. Here's another old idea cast aside. Because I was taught that you have to believe as they believe. And if you didn't believe as they believe, you're going to hell just sure as anything. And this book says that isn't necessarily true. We did not need to consider another's conception of God. Our own conception, however inadequate, was sufficient to make the approach and to effect a contact with Him. An old idea cast aside, a new idea takes its place. You let me have my own conception of God. Then that old hellfire and brimstone begins to disappear. I begin to think just maybe, might be a kind and a loving God that can help me out. Old idea cast aside, replaced with a new idea. Many years ago, I went to a preacher, my wife's preacher at that time, to see if I could get back home, you know, how we do, we'll have to do anything. So I went over and talked to this guy, and he looked at me and said, Well, Joe, what seems to be your problem? Well, I don't know what my problem is. So I told him what I thought it was, and it was her. <laughs> and if you live with her, you'd drink too, I told him. Well, the most Southern Baptist preachers will give you a solution to your problem. And he said, you must, and boy, did he emphasize that word must. You must have faith in these things. And he told me what they were. And I just looked at him. I got up and left. How can you have faith in something that you don't even believe? See, I had to come to believe. And this was the process. I didn't have any faith. I had to come to believe. And George gave me a way to come to believe. As soon as we admitted the possible existence of a creative intelligence, a spirit of the universe underlying the totality of things, we began to be possessed of a new sense of power and direction, provided we took other simple steps. We found that God does not make too hard a term to those who seek Him. To us, the realm of spirit is broad-roomy, all-inclusive, never-exclusive or forbidding to those who earnestly seek. It is open, we believe, to all men. I said, George, you mean i got to find God? And he said, Joe, God's not lost. <laughs> he said, it's not in the finding, it's in the seeking. You follow me? It's not in the finding, it's in the seeking. And if I will seek God in my life, he will disclose himself to me. It's in the seeking, it's not in the finding. Thank God I learned that one. Another old idea cast aside. I was taught the way to God is a very straight and narrow path. And if you fall off of the other side of it, you're going to hell just sure as anything. And this thing says we found that God does not make too hard terms with those who seek Him. To us, the realm of the Spirit is broad and roomy. It's not that straight and narrow path that I thought it was. It's not that rigid thing that I thought you had to be. He says it's all-inclusive, never exclusive or forbidding to those who earnestly seek. Another old idea cast aside. 
I was taught that if you didn't believe like they believed, there's no way, no way that you could make it. That you're going to go to hell just sure as anything. And only those that believed as they believed were going to be able to go to the other good place. And this says that isn't necessarily true. It's all inclusive. Never exclusive or forbidding. To those who earnestly seek, it is open, we believe, to all men. Some old ideas cast aside, replaced with some new ideas. My concept of God is already beginning to change. Page 47. When therefore we speak to you of God, we mean your own conception of God. This applies too to other spiritual expressions which you find in this book. Do not let any prejudice. Now prejudice is old ideas. You may have against spiritual terms deter you from honestly asking yourself what they mean to you. That's all we're doing, asking ourselves what these things mean to us. At the start, this is all we needed to commence spiritual growth, to affect our first conscious relation with God as we understood Him. And then afterward, we found ourselves accepting many things which then seemed entirely out of reach. That was growth. But if we wished to grow, we had to begin somewhere. So when you, we used our own conception, however limited it was, and certainly in my case it was very, very limited, but it was a starting place. It was a starting place. And I've been seeking God into my life ever since. And every year that goes by, my will changes, my life changes, and my understanding of God changes. It's an ongoing process. Never get to a point that I know it all in this area. I'm always seeking. Now to those of us who are seeking this relationship with God, you've got to have a starting point. And this is where we start. We needed to ask ourselves but one short question. Do I now believe? The agnostic has always believed. Or am I even willing to believe? The atheist can become willing to believe that there is a power greater than myself. As soon as a man can say that he does believe the agnostic or is willing to believe the atheist, we emphatically assure him that he's on his way. It has been repeatedly proven among us that upon this simple cornerstone, a wonderfully effective spiritual structure can be built. Asterisk, bottom of the page, please be sure to read Appendix 2 on spiritual experience. You see, the wonderfully effective spiritual structure that we're building is the spiritual experience. We don't have to wait to step 12 to get something out of it. We're in a process of building it now as we go through. Step one, willingness, was the foundation of that structure. Step two, believing, is the cornerstone of that structure. And later on, we're going to put some more stones in place as we build this structure. That was great news for us. For we'd assume we could not make use of spiritual principles unless we accepted many things on faith which seem difficult to believe. Now right here he separates the two words, faith and belief. And one of the problems I always had as a kid in church is the minister always said, Son, all you got to do is have faith and you'll be all right. Well, faith implies knowledge. Faith implies surety. 
Faith is after the fact information. I never had any faith that God would do for me what I couldn't do for myself. The best I can possibly do is to believe that God can do so. And then after certain things transpire and I receive God's power, then I'll know and then I'll have faith. Let me give you a good example. Let's say that I moved into this Washington, D.C. area. And two or three months after I move in here, I've got a problem with my automobile. I don't know a good mechanic anywhere in this area. But you've lived here for years. And I'm pretty sure you'll know somebody. So I come to you and I say, look, I've got a problem with my car. Can you recommend a good mechanic? And you say, sure. Take your car over there to John. He'll do you a good job and he'll charge you a reasonable price. Well, I don't know whether that's true or not. But if I believe you strong enough, I'll take my car over there to John. And sure enough, he does a good job and charges me a reasonable price. When I went there, I believed he would. When I left there, I know that he would. Now, the next time I have a problem with my automobile, I don't ask you or anybody else where to take it. I take it right back to John. Only this time I took it on faith. The first time I took it on belief. Then after certain things happened, I knew. And now I take it back on faith. You can't start with faith. The best you can possibly do is start with belief. Thank God step two says we came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. It didn't say we came to know. It didn't say we came to have faith. It said we came to believe. And that's the best we can do in the beginning is just to believe. If we're an agnostic, we already believe in God. If we're an atheist, we can become willing to believe in God. And we're assured then that we're on the way to the finding of this power greater than human power. Such a simple idea. Such a simple idea. I lived nearly, hell, I lived nearly over 40 years before I ever got this thing figured out, you know. Thank God it's very, very simple, you know. Okay, let's go to page uh, 51. If we know this, why, why and how would we keep this from coming into our, into our life? On page 51 it says, This world of ours had made more material progress in the last century than all the millenniums which went before. Almost everyone knows the reasons. Students of ancient history tell us that the intellect of men in those days was equal to the best of today. Yet in ancient times, material progress was painfully slow. The spirit of modern scientific inquiry, research, and invention was almost unknown. In the realm of material, men's minds were fettered by superstition, tradition, and all sorts of fixed ideas. If you've ever been up further up northeast from here, all those little towns up there and those little states up there, those people came over here originally for religious freedom. That's why they came here. And as long as everybody in that area was practicing their religion and somewhat like the others were, the group conscious of the area, if you will, you were okay. But if you had an idea that was different than the group conscience of the area and you expressed it, what would they do for you? They'd burn you at the stake for being a witch, wouldn't they? So if you had any ideas like that, you'd keep them to yourself. But you see, we have a, 
a spiritual liberation from that particular thing. And, and I used to wonder, why is it that we have televisions and airplanes and cars and all cell phones and all those things? Are we smarter than those people 500 years ago? The answer is no. The intellect of the men in those days was equal to the best of today. So why kept those, why kept those people in the dark ages? Superstition, tradition, and all sorts of fixed ideas kept them in the dark ages. Even today, I need an open mind more today than I've ever needed an open mind. Because superstition, tradition, and fixed ideas would keep me in the dark ages, so to speak. I need an open mind more today than I've ever needed an open mind. I continue to seek with an open mind. And my understanding gets better as time goes by. Not perfect. I don't know anybody, at least I don't know anybody that knows God 100%. You know, I know him better than I did when I started. That's all I can tell you. You see, through the seeking. Because superstition and tradition and old ideas would keep me in the dark ages. Some of the contemporaries of Columbus thought a round earth was preposterous. You know, I think Columbus is one of the greatest examples of what, of what a human being can do based upon belief. And we are, we, we are, are pretty well satisfied that Columbus had to be an alcoholic. You know, you've got to be stubborn and bullheaded to be able to stand there and express an opinion different than all the rest of the world. In Columbus's days, everybody thought that the world was flat. And Columbus was big enough to say, I don't believe that. He says, I think it's round. You've got to be tough to do that. Another reason I think he was alcoholic, he, explained all, he, he displayed all the mannerisms of an alcoholic. When he left, he didn't know where he was going. <laughs> when he got there, he didn't know where he was. When he came back, he didn't even know where he had been. <laughs> and what really made him an alcoholic is a woman financed the whole trip for him. <laughs> Twice she did that. Columbus was able <clears throat> Columbus was able to change basically the map of the world. And based upon what he did and what he experienced, the entire world changed after that. And Columbus followed a little formula. You want to write down these key words. Columbus followed a little formula that the world has always known that if you're going to change anything, period. There are certain things you have to do. And the first thing you have to do, you have to be willing to change. And circumstances are what makes people willing to change. In Columbus's days, they were trying to find a new trade route to the East Indies. The only way they had to go was to sail to the northeast end of the Mediterranean. And then they went by land, and it took literally years to get that to the East Indies and back, camelback, horseback, footback, however they travel. And they were looking for a new trade route. And somebody said, is there any way we could sail a ship to the East Indies? And they said, no, dummy. Don't you know the only thing you can do is sail to the northeast end of the Mediterranean and then you have to go by land? And they said, well, what if we sailed in the other direction? They said, well, idiot, 
Don't you know the world is flat? And if you sail out there, you're going to sail right off the edge of this sucker and you're not coming back. Now, I don't know why they believed that. I assume some people sailed out there, didn't come back, and they assumed that they sailed off the edge of it. See? So circumstances trying to find a new trade route is what made old Columbus willing to change his ideas and what he believed. The second thing you've got to do to change anything is to believe you can do so. And Columbus said, I believe that this world is round. I don't think it's flat. And he made one of the most drunk statements the world's ever heard. He said, I believe we can get east by sailing west. (laughs) If that isn't drunk thinking, I don't know what else is. But his belief didn't do him any good because he's still standing on the shore of the ocean the day he expressed it. Some days, weeks, months, years later, Columbus did the next thing you have to do in order to change anything. He made a decision. He said, by golly, I'm going to go find out whether this thing is round or flat or whether you can get east by sailing west. But his decision didn't do him any good either because he's still standing on the shore of the ocean the day he expressed it. Some days, weeks, months, years later, he began to do the next thing you have to do. He began to take action. And he went to the king of Portugal and tried to get the king to finance the trip. And the king said, Columbus, there's no way I'm going to let you have this money. He said, you'll sail out there and sail right off the edge of this sucker and I'll lose it all. That's why he ended up with the Queen of Spain. Sweet talked her out of the money on the promise that he would bring back gold and silk and spices. She gave him the money and he took the money and he bought three ships, put provisions in those three ships, put crew members in those three ships. They began to go east by sailing west, day after day after day after day, sailing straight west. Now, we don't know for sure, but we have a strong suspicion that on the first trip he hired a special sailor put him on the bow of the lead ship at night, whispered in his ear, and said, I believe this thing is round, but if you see the edge of this damn thing, you holler so we can get turned around. (laughs) Now, after sailing straight west, day after day after day after day after day, they always got, he got what you always get after the action, he got results. He found land on the other side. Now, we know he thought it was the East Indies. It wasn't. It was the West Indies. But what he had proven to himself is the world is not flat. It is round. You will not sail off the edge of it. He turned right around and came right back to Europe. Went right back to the Queen of Spain. And she said, Columbus, where's the gold, silk, and spices you promised you would bring me? And he said, sweetheart, I'm sorry. I didn't find any. But he said, I'll tell you what. If you'll refinance me, I'll go back. And this time I'll find it. Trust me, honey. Trust me, honey. (laughs) She refinanced him and he got some more ships and more provisions and more crew members. And he began to go east again by sailing west with one big difference. He didn't hire the special sailor. Put him on the bow of the lead ship at night with a lantern. Because you see, he went back in faith. He now knew that the world was round. You can't Start with faith. You can only start with belief. And then certain things have to transpire. 
And then you get the results, and then you can have faith. Now, I'd like to sit here this afternoon and tell you the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous are brand new. The world's never seen anything like them before. But if I did, I'd tell you a lie. Because they're based upon the same set of principles that Columbus and every other human being has ever used to change anything. In order for we alcoholics to recover from alcoholism, the first thing we have to do is to be willing to change. That comes from step one. When we can see what we're doing is no longer going to work, period. When we're desperate, as only as desperate as the dying can be, we become willing to change. The second thing you have to do is to believe you can do so. And that's step two. Came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. The third thing you have to do is make a decision. And that's step three. And the book is going to tell us that step three will have little permanent effect unless at once followed by a strenuous course of action. Four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, and eleven are all action steps. Step twelve gives us the results. Having had a spiritual awakening is the result of these steps. I no longer believe that God will restore me to sanity. I know that He will because He has done so. I now have faith in it. And those of us that have been restored to sanity and we have the faith in this program, then we can go help the next newcomer come to believe. Then they can decide. And then we can take them by the hand and walk with them through the action steps and they'll have a spiritual awakening and they'll know and they can go help the next newcomer come to believe. There's only one thing you and I can't do for the newcomer. We can't make them willing. Willingness, step one, is a job they have to work on themselves. How does an alcoholic become willing to change? Very simple. Drink a lot of whiskey. Drinking whiskey. And if you drink enough of it and you're almost dead from it, then you become willing to change. And when they're willing, then we can help them come to believe and we can help them decide and we can help them act. But becoming willing is an inside job they have to do themselves. I had a guy tell me one time, he said, he said, I've been in AA 10 years and I've been working on step one in AA all that 10 years. And I said, no, you haven't. You don't work on step one in AA. You work on step one out there drinking whiskey. And then when you get here, then we can help you out. But first, you've got to be willing to change and admit you're powerless over alcohol. Your life has become unmanageable. Such a simple little procedure. You know, I thought this finding God was going to be a complicated thing, but it's really not. It's a very, very simple thing. If I know I need God, if I know the beginning of the finding is to believe or be willing to believe, if I know the process necessary to find Him, then I just need to know one more thing. Where am I going to find God? And I think we get here just as confused about where God is as we ever were confused about what God was. I know as a kid growing up in church, I got a picture of God in my mind. I don't know whether I saw it or whether I imagined it. But to me, God was a tall, elderly gentleman 
standing on a cloud up in the sky. Long flowing white robe. Long flowing white hair. Golden halo around his head. Sun rays shooting out of it. And a big stick in his right hand. I think one of the reasons I thought God was there is because I noticed in church when I was a kid going to church that every time the minister talked about God, he always pointed up there. So I knew God had to be up there somewhere. But then what really confused me is I noticed every time the minister wanted to talk to God, he always looked down here. (laughs) Hell, no wonder we get confused as kids in church, you know. And I looked, and I looked, and I looked, and I never could find God until I came to page 55 in the big book, Alcoholics Anonymous, and it tells me just exactly where I'm going to find God. Years ago, I was working with this halfway house in Tulsa that we started, and a young guy in there asked me if, uh, if I'd sponsor him. I said, well, sure, be glad to. He said, uh, what would you want me to do? I said, well, first thing you need to do is get out of this halfway house. Not a very good place to live, basically. And he said, Well, it's easy for you to say, I don't have a job. I don't have a car. If I had a car, I could get a job because I'm very well qualified. I said, Well, I'll take you back and forth and help you find a job, get you two or three weeks' paychecks, and then we'll get you a car. So that's what we did. But on the way to work one morning, he told me a story that was going to change my life. So all the time I'm helping him, but now he's going to tell me a story that changed my life. And the story went like this. There was these three wise men for the east, from the east, he told me. And they stole from man and woman the crown of life, the thing that would make us the happiest. And now they took it away from us and said, now what are we going to do with it? Well, one of them said, I'll tell you what we'll do. We'll hide it in the highest crevice on the highest mountain on the face of the earth, and they'll never be able to get it there. But the other two said, yeah, but you know how they are. They'll hunt and they'll search and they'll eventually find it. The second one said, I'll tell you what, let's take it to the deepest, deepest ocean, put us in the deepest crevice in the deepest ocean, they'll never be able to find it there. But the other two said, yeah, but you know how they are. They'll hunt and they'll search it, and they'll eventually find it. The third one said, I'll tell you what we'll do. We'll hide it within himself, and he'll never look for it there. And our book said, yet we've been seeing another kind of flight, a spiritual liberation of this world, people who rose above their problems. They said God made these things possible and we only smiled. We had seen spiritual release but like to tell ourselves that it wasn't true. Actually, we were fooling ourselves. For deep down in, in every man, woman, or child is a fundamental idea of God. You see, it's just there. Maybe obscured by calamity, by pomp, by worship, or other things, but in some form or other, it's there. For faith in a power greater than ourselves and miraculous Demonstrations of power in human lives are facts as old as man himself. See, we're just born with it. It's just there. We finally saw that faith in some kind of a God was a part of our makeup, just as much as the feeling we have for a friend. Sometimes we had to search fearlessly, but he was there. He was as much a fact as we were. We found the great reality deep down within us. And the last analysis, only there they may be found. And it was so with us. Remember in the... Explanation of the spiritual experience. He said that inner resource, that's what he's talking about. God is within us, everyone. You know, we believe today that every human being on earth seems to be born with some form of basic knowledge 
lying at a subconscious level that seems to be able to tell us what we should do and what we shouldn't do. It seems to be able to tell us how we should live and how we shouldn't live. And, and I know some people might want to call that common sense. Other people might want to call it innate intelligence. Some might want to call it the conscience. Others might want to call it the soul. I don't think it makes any difference what we call it, as long as we realize it's there. And I know in my own life it's been there as far, far back as I can remember. I used to be getting ready to do something, and this little voice from within me would say, Charlie, I don't really think you ought to be doing this. And I wouldn't pay a bit of attention to it. I'd go ahead and do it, and I'd just get in one hell of a mess. And that same little voice would say, See, I told you not to do it in the first place. (laughs) Now, if that's God, then I'm 100% convinced that it is. And if God dwells within me, and I know that He does, then that means I've got my own God. I don't worry anymore about whether He's the God of the Baptist church or not. I don't worry about whether He's the God of the Catholic church, the Hebrew religion, or anybody else's religion. If He dwells within me, He's bound. And He and I can come together in very simple and very understandable terms. This is the greatest piece of information that I have ever learned. I don't have to go find God. If God's within me, I don't have to go find Him. I've just got to uncover the crap that keeps me from seeing God within me. And that's what all the rest of this program is about. To uncover that crap and get rid of it so that the God within me can begin to come to the surface. And this is so simple that every time I think about it, it just blows my mind. You know, I thought this was going to be a complicated procedure. It's not complicated at all. We just have to do a few certain things and we'll get results and then we'll know and then we'll have faith. This thing really does work. Joe? If I happen to be an atheist here, go to that Washington Monument, go all the way up the top them little windows up there and jump out. <laughs> and before you hit the ground, I bet you holler, oh God. <laughs> <laughs> Why? Because it's just within you. That's all. <clears throat> now look at this next little paragraph. This sums up this whole chapter, We Agnostics. He said, we can only clear the ground a bit if our testimony helps sweep away prejudice, these old ideas, enables you to think honestly. So that's what we're trying to do. Encourage you to search diligently within yourself. Then, if you wish, you can join us on the broad highway. With this attitude, you cannot fail. Now get this. The consciousness of your belief is sure to come to you. You'll have a God of your own understanding that nobody but nobody but nobody could improve upon. The consciousness of your belief is sure to come to you. It's in the seeking. It's not in the finding. It's in the seeking within ourselves, always. I can almost see Bill now as he finishes up this chapter. And he sits back and reviews what he's done up to this point again. Probably says to himself, in the doctor's opinion, 
And my story, Bill's story, I was able to show them the problem. In chapter 2, I was able to show them the solution. In chapter 3, I was able to show them what's going to happen to them if they don't find that solution. And in chapter 4, I was able to give them some new ideas so that they would be able to make a decision about that solution. Probably says to himself, I think I've given them all the preliminary information they now need. It's now time to get down to the main object of the book, to tell them how to find that power. And he sits down and he begins to write on how it works. And Bill had a lot of difficulty with how it works for two or three reasons. Number one, we have people coming into AA, many Protestants. We had Catholics coming into AA. We had some Jewish people coming into AA. We begin to see a sprinkling of Muslims coming into AA. And he's getting ready to write a set of directions on how to find God. And how in the world are you going to do that without offending a bunch of people? Also, they had made six little steps from the Oxford group. And Bill could see loopholes in those steps that the alcoholic mind was slipping through. And he felt they need to be expanded and strengthened. He didn't know how far. He just knew they need to be expanded and strengthened. And he said he tried and he tried and he tried and he tried. And he just could not get started. On chapter 5, he said one night while in bed, pillow behind his back, pad and pencil in hand, leaning against the headboard, trying to start chapter 5. And he said, I finally just gave up. And said, I put the pad and pencil down, closed my eyes, and prayed and meditated. I have no idea what he said. And I'm sure he asked God for help. And he said he prayed and meditated for 15 or 20 minutes. And then he said when he picked up the pad and the pencil, it felt as if the pencil had a mind of its own as it raced across the pages. In about a half hour, he had written how it works. This thing that we read at all of our AA meetings today which includes the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. When he got finished with it, he was highly enthused about it. There was another member of the Oxford group, Alcoholic, that came by to see Bill. They knew that usually at night he stayed up late working on his stuff. And this other member was a guy named Howard. And Howard had a new pigeon with him. And they come to see Bill, and Bill got up, and he could hardly wait to show them the new 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. Hmm. And Howard said, what in the hell is this? (laughs) He said, hell, Bill, Moses only had 10. (laughs) And here you've got 12. You know how you'd feel if you left your grown group last week and they had 12 steps, and you go back next week and they got 24. 
And the fight was on. And they fought and they fought. Bill had to take this. Remember, that original 40 people said, we want to see the chapters as you write them. And we'll add to, delete from, and change around. Bill made copies of this, sent it to these other members, and that's when the crap hit the fan. Now, Joe is going to read to you the original, how it works, as Bill wrote it that night. Not the way it is in the book today. And if you'll follow through with him, I think you'll be able to see the differences. I also think you'll be able to see what the other members objected to also. And I'm sure Joe, by changing the tone of his voice or pausing, will be able to point out these differences. Joe, would you read how it works, please? You'll also get to see what Bill really meant by these things, too. How it works. Rarely have we seen a person fail who has solely followed our directions. Those who do not recover are people who cannot or will not completely give themselves to this simple program. Usually men and women who are constitutionally incapable of being honest with themselves. There are such unfortunates. They're not at fault. They seem to have been born that way. They are naturally incapable of grasping and developing a way of life which demands rigorous honesty. Their chances are less than average. There are those two who suffer from grave emotional and mental disorders, but many of them do recover if they have the capacity to be honest. Our stories disclose in a general way what we used to be like and what happened and what we're like now. now if you decide you want what we have and are willing to go to any length to get it, then you are ready to follow directions. <laughs> At some of these, you may balk. You may think you can find an easier, softer way. We doubt if you can. <laughs> With all the earnestness of our command, we beg of you to be fearless and thorough from the very start. Some of us have tried to hold on to our old ideas, and the result was nil until we let go, absolutely. Remember that you are dealing with alcohol, cunning, baffling, powerful. Without help, it is too much for you. But there is one who has all power. That one is God. You must find him now. <laughs> Half measures will avail you nothing. You stand at the turning point. Throw yourself under his protection and care with complete abandon. Now we think you can take it. Here are the steps we took which are suggested as your program of recovery. One, admitted we were powerless over alcohol. Their lives had become unmanageable. Two, came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. Three, made a decision to turn our will and our lives over the care and direction of God as we understood Him. Four, made a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. Five, admitted to God, to ourselves, and to another human being the exact nature of our wrongs. Six, we're entirely willing that God remove all these defects of character. Seven, humbly, on our knees, asking to remove our shortcomings, holding nothing back. Eight, made a list of all persons we had harmed and became willing to make complete amends to them all. Nine, made direct amends to such people wherever possible except when to do so would injure them or others. Ten, 
continued to take personal inventory and when we were wrong, promptly admitted it. 11. Sought through prayer and meditation to improve our contact with God, praying only for the knowledge of His will for us and the power to carry that out. 12. Having had a spiritual experience as a result of this course of action, we tried to carry this message to others, especially alcoholics, and to practice these principles in all of our affairs. Now you may exclaim, what an order. I can't go through with it. But do not be discouraged. No one among us has been able to maintain anything like perfect adherence to these principles. We're not saints. The point is that we're willing to grow along spiritual lines. The principles we have set down are guides to progress. We claim spiritual progress.